You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. In 458 BC, Rome's neighbors to the east broke their one-year-old peace treaty. The Roman consuls for the year led out their armies, and one army was quickly surrounded and besieged with five horsemen escaping to tell the Roman Senate what had happened. The second consul's army was unable to help, putting the senators into a panic and authoring the nomination of a dictator. Cincinnatus was granted this appointment for a term of six months. As the story goes, a group of senators were sent to Cincinnatus to inform him of his appointment. They found him plowing his farm. He asked them, is everything all right? And they asked him to don his senatorial toga before hearing what the Senate had mandated. Once he was properly dressed, the delegation hailed him as dictator and brought him to Rome. The next morning, Cincinnatus went to the forum, proceeded to raise a new army, and then marched to battle. The enemy was under attack, with Cincinnatus having the upper hand. He accepted their pleas for mercy and offered an amnesty, provided that three pr- the three principal offenders were executed and the rest bowing and admitting their defeat. Cincinnatus then disbanded his army, returned to his farm, abandoning his control a mere 15 days after it had been granted to him. The legend of Cincinnatus has inspired admiration throughout the centuries and has been invoked to honor other political leaders, notably George Washington. We will get to this in a few seasons. Washington's relinquishing control of the Continental Army, refusal to, con- refusal to consider becoming a monarch, and his voluntary retirement after two terms as president, all echoing the story of Cincinnatus. Two centuries later, whistleblower Edward Snowden used the nickname Cincinnatus when first contacting journalist Glenn Greenwald. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. That voice that you just heard was Matt Whitliff discussing Cincinnatus. Learn more about the History of Modern Politics at historyofmodernpolitics.com. You can also subscribe to an early release of many different episodes at that location. Matt, why go back? Hey, Chris. So we are talking around 8180 to 425 today in this episode. Why jump all the way back to 458 BC to discuss Cincinnatus? What is his importance in our timeline? Yeah, I mean, this, the story of Cincinnatus, like we talked about, is is one of these legendary things and really illustrative of the ideal of the Roman Republic of, you know, someone not seeking power and, you know, uh, coming in to fulfill their duty and then retiring back to be a normal citizen. And, you know, as we've covered in the last couple episodes, that's not the direction Rome, you know, was going. Right. And uh, today we see the full fall of, of the Western Empire. And, you know, really contrasting that against the, you know, duty and, um, you know, kind of uh, nobility of Cincinnatus is, is really, you know, a stark contrast. Now that I'll also add one of our key features of the episode today, Diocletian, is actually one of the a rare potential example of someone relinquishing power as well. And, uh, you know, he retires uh, similarly to Cincinnatus, not not nearly under the same circumstances, <laughs> but uh, there's at least a little bit of parallel there as well. I also think the story of Cincinnatus kind of highlights the the nature of storytelling and figures like Cincinnatus in terms of propaganda and how those stories are used over and over throughout the history of Rome. 
you know, I'm a modern day Cincinnatus when they're really not a Cincinnatus at all. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Absolutely. So let's continue talking about why uh, the Roman Empire is important in our story. Again, we're focusing on Britain a lot, but we have to talk about Rome and its fall to really understand what happens in the next episode with uh, Britain. Um, but yep. the Roman Empire was the dominant influence on life in the regions that we'll focus on for centuries. And its legacy is vast, and both the era of the Republic and the Empire have endured throughout history. We'll see some policy choices made by the Empire, and its eventual collapse have massive impacts on how Europe, including Britain, move forward over the next centuries, specifically in terms of security. And the yep. infrastructure left behind... The founding of towns, the Roman roads, these, uh, and the economic collapse. Because when you have the Roman roads come in uh, to Britain, you have all of a sudden free trade for the first time ignite the British economy and then completely collapse in the Dark Ages. So let's jump back into Rome. Let's talk yep. about the weakening of the empire in the crisis of the third century. So let's, let's start there, Matt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we left off last time, we had just had the the reign of the the five good emperors and, you know, now we are sitting with uh the downfall as we move into the 3rd century. So, um, you know, the the height of trade and commerce is happening under this era of Pax Romana and um, you know, Chris, tell us what historian Henry St. Lawrence of Beaufort Moss talked about. So, he described it as thus. Along these roads passed an ever-increasing traffic, not only of troops and officials, but of traders, merchandise, and even tourists. An interchange of goods between the various provinces rapidly developed, which soon reached a scale unprecedented in the previous history and not repeated until a few centuries ago. Metals mined in the uplands of Western Europe, hides, fleeces, and livestock from the pastoral districts of Britain, Spain, and the shores of the Black Sea, wine, and oil from province and aquitaine timber and pitch and wax from south russia and northern anatolia dried fruits from syria marble from the aegean coast and most important of all grain from the wheat growing districts of north africa egypt and the danube valley for the needs of the great cities all of these commodities under the influence of a highly organized system of transport and marketing move freely from one corner of the empire to the other yeah. So, you know, I think that passage is really illustrative of what what life looked like from, you know, corner to corner of the empire when, you know, Rome was at its peak. And and now we move from Marcus Aurelius, who we talked about last time, to his son, Commodus, who uh, is is famously featured fictionally by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie The Gladiator. He, he thinks he wants to be this gladiator emperor <laughs> and is probably you know in you know a narcissist to the max and you know that really kind of begins the uh the path towards uh, the demise of the uh the amazing streak of emperors that that Rome had had that led to this description that uh, Beaufort Moss talked about yeah i mean the gladiator like the the show rome these are great little insights into culture uh, of that period, but not good history always. So make sure you <laughs> right. read up on Commodus before you start quoting that at Joaquin Phoenix as, as history. Now he uh, ends up assassinated. Um, yep. And then that, then we go on to the Severan dynasty, which emerges with 
some notion of stability, but increasing conflicts with the Germanic tribes. Uh, and that leads to the assassination of Severus Alexander in 235. And we're now squarely in the crisis of the third century. And third century means 200s. Okay. So you, if yeah. it's the 21st century, it's the, the, you know, 2000. Yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so just so just so everybody kind of keeps that straight in their head. So it leads to a lot of se- secession and civil war. So why is that? Why? Why do we end up with civil war once you have Severus Alexander? Um, yeah. So, so at this point, there's there's really no clear rules for imperial succession. Right. Uh, the the empire had maintained this facade of a republic where the senators are kind of choosing the emperors, but becoming the emperor at, at this time really relied on a combination of still some proclamation by the Senate, a little bit of popular approval. You definitely had to have acceptance by the military, by the army, and in particular, the Praetorian Guard, which the Praetorian Guard, if, if you go dig deeper into this era of Roman history, is, is they really start having increasing amounts of power behind the scenes. And actually, even before this, right? But what the Praetorian was- Guard is the special like elite group that is uh, is identified to essentially serve the emperor, right? It's like his private uh, private guard. And it was basically formed by um, Augustus and it, it had never existed. And there was never like a standing army in Rome until Augustus and the Praetorian Guard, right? Yes, that's okay. right. All right. I just wanted to make sure. I, I had that in my head, but I was like, I want to make sure I get this detail right. Now, after the overthrow of the Severan dynasty for the rest of the third century, Rome was ruled by a series of generals, and they come into power through frequent civil wars, which just completely devastated the empire. Think about the American Civil War, the history that you're probably more readily familiar with, and the necessity of the rebuilding of the South and the reintegration. Now, and just the devastation on the the people that lived in the areas where the battles took place. Now, beginning with Maxim, Maximinus Thrax, excuse me, there were yep. approximately 14 barracks emperors in 33 years. So that's 14 emperors in 33 years. Imagine this instability that, uh, that you'd have an emperor every less than two years, really, apiece. Yeah. And so... The imperial office and the near-constant state of civil war and insurrection threatened to destroy the Roman Empire from within, and it left it vulnerable to attack from external adversaries and other circumstances like what, Matt? Yeah, well, other other circumstances that happened were we, we were coming on an era of natural disasters as well. Uh, so, you know, we all know the Black Death and plagues, and, and there's various uh, times throughout European history, Western history, where, you know, there's the emergence of these plagues. And, and it just happened, so happened, unfortunately, right, that during this, the, the 200s, that there was a, an increase in the amount of plagues, and then also just weather patterns caused uh, disruption around uh, poor you know, poor bounties and harvests and things like that at the same time, too. So you've got a variety of factors from a natural disaster perspective uh, that are causing this like negative feedback loop where between that and the uh, movement of tribes, barbarians on the outer edges of the empire, empire, you know, cause the armies to be moving out to the fringes. And ultimately then, you know, without this clear line of succession, you've got these so-called barracks emperors, which are essentially military 
emperors, right? Ones who right. are rising out through the barracks as opposed to rising out through the aristocracy or, or through, di- uh, uh, through di- dynastic succession, through families, right? Now and, these... and, and say what you want about elites, but especially yeah. in this time, elites have access to education that leads them to reading and writing where your typical soldier might not have that. It leads to uh, a better understanding of the political norms. Uh, and it, it really makes an impact there. I, and on, on the plagues, I also want to throw in a recommendation for in the wake of the plague by Norman Cantor, because he touches on the impact of bubonic plague in Rome and its downfall in that book. But if you think about 2020, Matt, Think of the economic disruption and the things that we saw in the outcome and during that that uh, plague, but the bubonic plague was much more aggressive. I mean, in, thir- oh, yeah. in the 1300s, we'll talk about it, it kills a third of Europe. I mean, that's an enormous death toll, uh, and this is the same plague in in the ends of the Roman Empire that starts to attack it. Right. Right. And so, you know, then, you know, again, it feeds on itself. Right. So you now have a, a military general rising up to become an emperor, but you've got uh, other generals who are now jealous and, and they start a war between them. And then now this the army backs a different emperor. And now because of the plague and the breakdown of trade, you know, now the army shifts over here. So it's just this kind, kind of constant cycle that that's leading to this amazing, you know, uh, you know, series of, you know, as we said, 14 emperors across, you know, just the next 33 years with this, starting with this Maximinus Thrax, right? So these usurpers, um, you know, they rise up through the military. They've got very little involvement now with the Senate. So any facade of, of trying to maintain the, the semblance of what the Republic was is really starting to go away. And, you know, it's not until the year 270 well, with yet I, can, another... Can we touch on that before we move on to Aurelian? Because the facade of a republic is part of their problem. It goes back to the Cincinnati story that we opened with. It does. The stories that we tell ourselves, and we can relate this to the modern times, right? Like, what are the, the, the stories that Americans tell themselves about their government and their people often don't really jive with, like, the realities, right? And this happened then, too. I mean... Matt, the the idea that they were a republic is partly why they they didn't have a plan of secession because they were lying to their themselves. I mean, not just the the yeah. leaders to the people, but the people were lying to themselves. Yes, and and then in that vacuum, you know, power begets power, and and instead right. of uh, you know, as the center of gravity of Rome, uh, the Roman Empire moved out of Rome, and uh, you know, most of these emperors come from now the area of. Uh, what is called Thrace, which is the Balkans, right? Because mm. that's where the military had to have its, um, you know, its center to to ward off barbarians and and various you know civil wars and other tribes and stuff. And so that facade, you know, now you're geographically removed, you're you know mentally removed, you know economically removed, and the the thing that fills into that vacuum is you know who's the strongest, who's got the it's- most might. It's militarism. Yeah, I mean, war, yep. war is the, what is the Randolph Bourne book? Uh, war is the health of the state. I mean, basically, like, the state, you know, government is when people are working together and, you know, we need to build a road and let's sign some contracts collectively. That, you know, that. but the state is, in the definition of Randolph Bourne, this all-encompassing, re- pseudo-religious 
idea that sucks up tax money to perpetuate those stories that they're telling about themselves. And when you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, the militarization and the the decade the well centuries long slide from you know peaceful farmers voluntarily working with each other into <laughs> a war state it only got worse and worse and worse over time and the constant need to go and fight because they expanded their empire so far the it, you got supply chains that are hard to feed people in in Britain and Gaul and People that are, are the backlash and resentment. So, yeah, I mean, like, militarism causes cannot, uprising. Yeah, it yeah. cannot be understated in this part. But let's move on to Aurelian from 270 to 275. Why is he a break in that chain that we talked about with the Barracks Emperors? So, so the he is himself another barracks emperor, right? But the uh, the the interesting thing about Aurelian is he goes on this, uh, you know. It, unprecedented at the time a streak of military victories right so so things start to settle down um he he defeats the alemanni he defeats the goths the vandals the jathungi the sarmatians the carpri like he is on a roll <laughs> right <laughs> and and by this point like the the empire was starting to break apart and there were there were uh, rival many states beginning to form uh, and factions out of the the empire, and Aurelian is actually able to bring it back together uh, by conquering the Palmyrene Empire in 273. There there had been a breakaway Gallic Empire as part of uh, you know we've talked about Gaul with with Caesar right so that part of the, of the Western Empire which is modern day France like that had was running kind of on its own. He's able to reunite all of this together. And as an administrator, he also was incredibly strict. He hands out punishments. Like he followed through on, you know, his, his power militarily with, you know, an autocratic point of view from, uh, you know, as the emperor and the administrator. So he is able to start to reunify the empire in a way that had not been done. And, and Aurelian's a little bit lost to history to a degree because, you know, we'll talk about Diocletian here next. Diocletian needed to erase some of the records of Aurelian to make himself look better. <laughs> so Diocletian gets some credit. I mean, he he rewrote a lot of Roman history. Uh, Aurelian was a little bit lost in that mix for many centuries. But uh, if you listen to, you know, we've we've talked about Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast, which is amazing, highly recommended. I mean, Aurelian comes out as one of his, you know, quote unquote favorite emperors uh, in in throughout his research. So. Yeah, so we then have six more emperors, and Diocletian comes along in 284. Um, and, and just to give you an idea, okay, so Aurelian is murdered by the Praetorian Guard in September of 275. In 284, you have six emperors between. That, that shows you the chaos that is happening at the top. And one thing about Roman history that I've noticed, Matt, is that and all of history, right? Like you get to, we'll get to the Magna Carta soon. The fighting at the top amongst the nobles and the kings and the ruling class that eventually can seep down. It it, it erodes eventually the stability and and it accelerates and it accelerates to a point that you have six emperors in that short span of time. But Diocletian comes along and wants to right the ship. So what is different, fundamentally different, about Diocletian than his predecessors? Yeah. So the interesting thing is, you know, if if you're sitting in the year 284 and Diocletian comes along, there's nothing that signals that anything is going to be any different. He he is. There's very little known about where he comes from. 
his background, how he became it's so powerful. Clock. I mean, there, there's some, right? I mean, but he, he looks like just yet another, you know, military guy who's an usurper, barracks emperor who comes to power, but he has big ideas and he is able to effectively implement his big ideas. And it really changes the course of, of Roman history and, and actually sets the table for a lot of changes that we'll see throughout uh, you know, Western uh, history the seeping into Britain, etc. So the first thing he does is he shares power. He acknowledges that the empire is too big to be effectively ruled by one person. And he, uh, within a year, makes Maximinian his co-emperor, who he has named as the Caesar to his Augustus. And in 286, this is kind of uh, comes along and, and fully sealed. And then within just a couple years after that, even in fuller recognition that this empire is too large to really even be controlled by two people, he forms what's now in history called the Tetrarchy, you know, four rulers. So he, he rises uh, Maximinian to be an Augustus, a co-Augustus with him. And they have two junior emperors who are referred to as the Caesars, uh, Galerius and Constantius, who, who kind of sit underneath uh, Diocletian and Maximinian. And now you have essentially four emperors all at the same time, two senior emperors and two junior emperors, east and west uh, split. Yeah, and the best way to sell this is to make it religious, right? We see that in our yeah. own time, right? It makes po- make politics religion and scare people, and then they'll follow you. I'm the only one that can save you. Now, the relationship between Diocletian and Maximinian was quickly couched in religious terms, like I said. And Diocletian, in Jupiter style, you know, which Jupiter is the Roman version of Zeus... Uh, would take on the dominating roles of planning and commanding. Maximinian, in Herculean mode, would act as Jupiter's heroic subordinate. And for all the religious connotations, the emperors were not gods, but they were seen as God's representatives, affecting their will on Earth. And a new style of ceremony was developed, emphasizing the distinction of the emperor from all persons. The quasi-Republican ideals of Augustus living in the simple house on... Uh, you know, in the hills is gone. Um, they were abandoned for all but the Tetrarchs themselves, and Diocletian took to wearing a gold crown and jewels, and every appearance was carefully staged, managed, and propagandized. And so that's the public perception. Matt, talk about some of the administration of the Diocletian era. Yeah, so it, it kind of continues on from this, uh, a break away from the Augustan illusion uh, that, you know, this imperial government was a cooperative affair amongst people. If you remember back to when we first talked about uh, Octavian taking on becoming Augustus, the first true em- emperor, uh, he was the princeps, the first first among equals, right? This illusion is gone. <laughs> Diocletian has no semblance of trying to, to maintain that. This is a... In autocratic state, Diocletian is in charge. Uh, there is a separation from the people now that is that is very clear, and and he does it really to drive effective administration, and uh, and he drastically increases the amount of bureaucrats in the government. Uh, it is it's you know we don't have exact numbers, but we think it moved from you know roughly fifteen thousand to thirty thousand bureaucrats in the civil service. He doubles the number of provinces. Uh, he, what he's really trying to do is create order and administrative process and create smaller units of government. Uh, with a very clear hierarchy that that kind of moves up the chain so that, you know, there's checks and balances and control all stopping at the top with him. 
so let's talk about some of the economic situation. Um, Diocletian restored the three metal coinage and issued better quality pieces because they had devalued their currency by watering it down. And the nominal values of these new issues were lower than their intrinsic worth as metals. And so the state was minting these coins at a loss. So they were, it was like in Zimbabwe when they couldn't, you know, a few years ago with hyperinflation, it w- the money was worth less than the paper it was printed on. Now, this practice could be sustained only by requisitioning precious metals from private citizens in exchange for state-minted coin of a far lower value than the price of the precious metal system requisitioned. Now, the system was in trouble. It was th- the economic system. It was strained by a new bout of inflation, and Diocletian issued his edict on coinage, devaluing the currency through debt policy. Now, his edict risked giving further momentum to inflationary trends, but the, governor, the government's response was to issue a price freeze. And the, the edict lists in detail over 1,000 goods and accompanying retail prices not to be exceeded. And the penalties were laid out for various pricing transgressions. And um, as, as we've often seen, price controls usually just disrupt the markets and cause a lot of different problems. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, mobility. I mean, was there, what was the social structure like during this time? So, so this actually, you know, this economic policy, which we've seen people, as you mentioned, try to implement price controls throughout history and inflation that, that leads to additional, um, restrictions that then Diocletian puts on in terms of professional mobility. And so this he he essentially basically says everybody stop <laughs> right whatever your job is today you have to maintain having that job and by the way your kids are going to have those jobs too right and and this is this these are the seeds of feudalism uh we'll talk a lot more about feudalism in a few future episodes here but now peasants uh you know become tied to the land in a way that you know, uh, really establishes rules around land tenure and workers. So bakers and armors and entertainers, you know, all of this becomes occupational hereditary. Mm. Um, and, and so if you're a child of a soldier, you're going to be a soldier. Um, and if you're the child of a baker, you're going to be a baker. And, and so this, this kind of cements a lack of professional mobility that presages what is, is ultimately going to evolve into feudalism. So Diocletian falls ill. It's often been said that our healthcare in this modern age is much better than King Henry VIII's. Um, and he retired. Now he falls ill, so he retires, and Maximian retires with him. And they orchestrate this to occur on the same day, May 1st, 305, with Diocletian in Nicodema, which is near modern day Turkey, and Milan, nearly 13 miles apart from each other. And they're the first two emperors in Roman history willingly to abdicate their positions. Now, Constant, Constantius, am I pronouncing Constantius. Constantius, okay, and Galerius are promoted to Augustus, and Maximinian's son, Maxentius, and Constantius, Con- yeah, I can't Constantius say Constantius' son, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Constantine uh, are well qualified and expected to be named Caesars, uh, but Galerius persuaded Diocletian to have his friend Severus appointed under Cons- Constantius over his own son, Maxentius, in the east, and Galerius had his nephew, Maximinus, Deza promoted to Caesar under him. So Matt, the, the you know they you get this moment where all right, it looks like these guys are going to follow. You know we, we're going to we might have some stability. corruption out of it, and then at the end they're like no 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 nepotism all the way. Yeah, Galerius gets Diocletian's ear, 
and um, you know, really makes the power move, and and everyone is surprised in the ranks that uh, that uh, Maxentius and Constantine are not promoted to become the new junior emperor. So so let's turn the story briefly to Britain because it, it's going to all tie together here. So so we go back to the island, and in this last century where we've been going through the crisis of the of the third century, um, you know, Britain's not immune to this. In fact, being at the edges of the empire. Uh, it, it's it's pretty bad. And so we have a series of revolts and, you know, usurpers and and all of that that's happening on Britain, on the island of Britain, too. So when when Severus, go, let's go back to Severus Alexander uh, at the beginning of the crisis, he, he had split the island into two provinces to try to keep keep the power balance in Britain there. Um you know, Britain becomes part of that Gallic breakaway emperor that we talked about that uh, that was ultimately reunited. But now Carousius is an usurper on the island and, and he declares himself independent emperor of Britain. Right. And and of northern Gaul. And so the Constantius, the Constantius that we were just talking about under under Diocletian's uh, tetrarchy, he retakes the island from from Carasius, right? So this is how it starts to tie together. And so the Western emperors under the te- Tetrarchy, you know, they've got a lot of busyness happening on the island of Britain to try to keep these revolts down. And, and it all kind of ties back to this this series of um, so, uh, so, patterns that we were seeing throughout the crisis of the third century. Uh, yeah, can, go ahead. Can I ask a dumb question? Uh, is Carasius British? Like, is the population rising up to, to yes. take back their... Or, or is he part of like a Roman usurping of his own people? I mean, at this point, it, it is Roman, but yes, he is he is from Britannia. Okay, all right, I got gotcha. you. So he's part of the Roman Empire. He's but he's he's British and he's trying to take over Britain. Seeing they're weak, he's trying seeing to seeing they're it over. weak. He, okay. he's he's you know just another super making the power plays. I mean, we talked about the barracks emperors. Those are just the ones who ultimately usurped and became emperors. There are uh, there are many other revolts and military leaders who are springing up in different places. You know that you know we can't go into all the detail. And Carasius is one of those, right? Uh, so you've got and, all these guys who are who go serve in the Roman army in places like Britain and Gaul, and then ing- like become part of the fabric of that society, and then you know, basically because they're at the head of the command structure of that locality, they then are starting to go after exactly. the Roman Empire when it's weak. And so it becomes, um, uh, you know... Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, an insurrection, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, all right, that makes total sense. Yep, and so, you know, this this continues to happen, and, and right around the time of Diocletian's retirement, you know, Britain's getting restless again. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, and Constantius returns to Britain, and this time with his son Constantine, who we expected to become the heir apparent, uh, actually in the east. So, interestingly, Constantius was in the west. Con- Constantine, to help balance the power and keep things at bay, was in the east under Galerius and was expected to become the junior emperor to Galerius. Um, he realizes, oh shoot, uh, I'm now I have a target on my head because when when Diocletian retires and and you know Galerius goes the other direction, Constantine hightails it out of the east, joins up with his father in the west, and they they start in Britain to help put down this, the, this next series of uprising. And so we've all heard, this is Constantine the great, by the way, now spoiler alert. Right? Yeah. I was, really, away. I was really surprised when I learned that Constantine the great was crowned emperor in Britain. 
That's right. That's right. So he starts his journey to becoming who we now know as Constantine the Great in Britain because mm. they put down some of these revolts. His father, Constantius, dies, surprisingly. And now the army, once again, in the pattern of all these usurpers, names Constantine their emperor. Yeah, and so, this, this is really important because it was in Britain... You know, during all these battles, when he saw the vision, like the famous story is that he saw before a battle the vision of Christ, and that's what caused Constantine in the 300s to adopt Christianity, which then led him changing the policies of people like Nero, right, and and accepting Christianity. I mean, it didn't didn't become a Christian empire till much later, but it was at least a reversal of yeah. those Christian persecutions, Matt. So just minor minor correction the the famous battle where where Constantine adopts the the symbol of Christ the Cairo that does not happen in Britain he has now already begun to move his his troops ah. he's negotiated some peace with with Galerius um, there's a, a period of now the civil wars of the Tetrarchy, and it is in in the midst of all of these battles where the famous battle of what's called the Milvian Bridge, um, which I believe is back in the Balkans uh, near modern day Croatia, uh, where the this you know the famous vision of the cross from the sky and the the Greek letters of Chi and Rho come, where Constantine essentially be, converts to Christianity. Uh, and and ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, 12 years later, <laughs> fully consolidates power. And now Constantine has uh, reunified the entirety of the Roman Empire um, and and is now back under the, the command of, you know, one single emperor. So no co-emperors, no tetrarchy or anything like that. Constantine is the guy. Yeah. So um, the Edict of Milan is issued in 313, which reversed Christian persecutions and elevated the religion to an equal status. Um, it wouldn't be till 380 under the Edict of Thessalonica by Emperors Theodosius I, Gratian. Uh, Theodosius was in the East, Gratian in the West, and Valentinian in the Second, only nine years old and junior part partner to uh, Gratian, that it would be adopted fully um, by the Empire. So there's a, so much that we could go on and, and continue yeah. to talk about all the different tribes and, you know, the Germanic tribes and, and the Franks and the Visigoths and all of that stuff. But let's just focus now on Britain and the, the Western collapse. So, you know, even in the time of Constantine, it was an unstable island with Rome struggling to maintain power. And Constantine created an example from which a military usurper could claim power in the empire, which precedents usually lead to more actions because once, once the, once, as we discussed in past episodes, once the norm has been broken and it's been broken successfully, people just continue to do that thing and it becomes the new norm. And so in the spirit of Constantine and other usurpers, Magnus Maxi, Maximus, Maximus, me, thank yep. you. <laughs> um, I've never been good at pronouncing uh, anything other than basic Hoosier English. So uh, some of these names are, are tough for my Hoosier tongue, my fat Hoosier tongue. Now he rises to power in 383 from Britain, moves into Gaul, consolidates power, kills Gratian, and gains much of the Western Empire, but meets his death by Theodosius from the East in 388, which effectively consolidates the East and West back under Theodosius. And then, then who takes over? 
now we have Eugenius, who's yet another Western usurper. And, and so he's defeated, but now Theodosius dies, and we're left with Honorius, who's 10 years old, who's the heir apparent <laughs> now to the emperor and to the empire. And so uh, a, a general named Stilicho is essentially the de facto power center behind the empire at this point. And and really, like Chris, at this point, I mean, things are really starting to unravel. There, there are again similar to the crisis of the third century, threats on on all edges of the empire, and and it splits and it's unified again, and it splits and it's unified again, and eventually, still shows like, look, we we have got to withdraw the entire Roman presence of of the military from the island of Britain because they're needed on the continent. So, so. You know, this happens uh, a few years later. There's, you know, the the usurpers on the island of Britain now see opportunity. And ultimately, Constantine the third, no relation to Constantine the Great, okay. has gained, con- you know, significant control of the Western Empire because, you know, Honorius is still pretty young at this point. And so there's there's essentially no military support from Rome. Invaders are coming from uh, the northern coast of Europe. Um, you know, we might know these people as the Anglo-Saxons, right? They're beginning to to hit the island of Britain, and it, it's not just the, the Saxons, too. I mean, it's the it's Sc- the Angles, it's the Jutes, it's the Frisians, it's the yeah. Scotty from uh, Ireland, the Picts from the north. Uh, you know, the, absolutely, the, the Picts were next to the Scottish, and so. The Britain, the Britons, basically in England, are just being besieged from the, the east, the west, the north, the south, the Germanic tribes, the Ostrogoths. Like everybody's just coming in, and and Matt, I, I read of we'll get to 1066 and the Norman invasion, but up to that point, Britain had been invaded nine times and had nine you know flips. So we're we're. We're in Rome time, and then we're about to get to the Anglo-Saxons, and then you get to the Normans, and then there's nine different changes on the island uh, until 1066. So we're in a very turbulent period, a very turbulent um, thousand years for the British. Yeah. And and um, so in the year 410, Honorius basically, you know, with the, the Britons appeal to the emperor, and Honorius is like, you're on your own officially. <laughs> Sorry. Right? And and um and that's the end of it really, right? That is the end of the Roman presence in in Britain. Um you know, Rome goes on to be sacked famously by the Visigoths in in the year uh in 410, you know, ultimately stumbling to a full collapse in the year 4 476. In in two episodes from now, we're going to revisit like a little bit of this period on the continent and, and, you know, what happens to detail the fall of the Western empire and, and what that leads to in France and Germany and, and, you know, kind of all the different areas of the region of the continent. Uh, but, but in the next episode, Chris, we're going to turn, you know, our focus fully to the Island of Britain and talk about what happens over the following centuries. Now that Rome is gone. All right, and that concludes this episode. You can hear the History of Modern Politics every 1st and 15th of the month. And if you are not a patron of the We Are Libertarians podcast network or a member over at historyofmodernpolitics.com, then you should go in and join now. So they heard this episode way back in June. And so if you're listening to this in, you know, 2022, 
You've got a lot of back catalog that you can go back and listen to in the history of modern politics.com, or you can join the Patreon at We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Matt Whitliff, my co host, for being such an excellent researcher, historian, and uh, friend. And uh, we will, uh, we appreciate you listening, and we will see you again in a couple weeks.